Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Church, are you thankful for a worthy Savior? Yeah. There's nothing else in the world that can receive glory and honor and power and blessing that it doesn't in some way taint or corrupt. But this, this King Jesus can receive all of those things and he turns them into blessing for his people. And we're so thankful for a God who saves and is, is worthy of our praise. This morning, we're going to dive into the book, the epistle, the little letter written by Paul, uh, Philippians, book of Philippians. I know it's probably a favorite of many of your, yours. Uh, it is among my favorites as well, and I have hesitated to preach through it because it is so familiar for so many, but I'm ready to, to preach from Philippians and eager to do so. So we're going to dive into the book of Philippians this morning in a message I'm simply calling the grace-filled greeting, the grace-filled greeting. We'll just cover verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, but it's going to take us a while to get there uh, because I want to sort of set up the entire book this morning. Uh, Philippians is a book that emphasizes living life in, for, and through Christ Jesus. In Philippians 1.21 Paul says, for me to live is Christ. My living is to be oriented toward Christ Jesus. Paul's desire is for himself and for those to whom he writes and for us in this room to live for Christ, to have our entire lives, not just individually, but as the gathered church to be oriented toward Christ, to live in a way that would redound to the glory of Jesus, to be fueled by the gospel and the lordship, the kingship of Jesus. Not just on Sunday or Wednesday nights, but every waking moment of our lives, in every situation, in every circumstance, no matter how challenging that may be. To be able to say, to live, my life, can be summed up in the word Christ. And the Holy Spirit, who inspired Paul to write this letter, now, 2,000 years later, he wants the same for us. So I'm calling us in this series to live, to be able to say, to live is Christ. I'm calling us to to listen to the messages that will be in this series in such a way that we would ask God to orient our lives, to fashion our lives according to this thesis statement, to live is Christ. Are you ready? You open to that? As we consider Philippians, it's going to be a while before we get to the text this morning, because I, I really want to do a good job of introducing the book and its, its relevance for us here in 2023. As we consider Philippians, it's helpful 
to review the background of Paul's special relationship with the church at Philippi. In Acts 16, we read about the founding of the Philippian church during Paul's second missionary journey, where we find Paul and Timothy and Silas, before they get to Philippi, you'll remember they're sort of wandering around Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, and they're trying to go to the next stop on the mission trip, and the Holy Spirit keeps going, nope, you're not going there, nope, you're not going there, nope, you're not going there. And then finally, in verse 9 of Acts 16, Paul sees this vision of a man from Macedonia standing there urging him to come over to what we would call modern-day Europe now for the gospel to, to go from Asia Minor into Eastern Europe, and he's standing there saying, come to Macedonia and help us. And so Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke set sail toward modern-day Europe, and they, they make their first stop in Philippi, where a wealthy woman named Lydia and all of her household come to saving faith in Jesus. But it's not just a wealthy woman in her household. There's also a slave girl who's delivered from a demon who presumably comes to faith in Christ. And there's also the, the working class jailer because the people aren't too happy that the slave girl's delivered because now they can't profit off of her uh, ability to, to forecast the future. And so now Paul and his team are in prison and then they sing hymns and they're released from prison and the jailer is like, what is going on? And he confesses faith in Jesus and his household comes to faith in Christ too. So in Philippi, we have this first church born in modern day Europe uh, uh, and it's, socio, it's diverse in terms of its socioeconomics, right? You got a wealthy woman in her house, you got a working class jailer in his house, and then a slave girl, and they're all saved and they all come to faith in Christ. And Paul and his team, with the exception of Luke, have to leave Philippi because people aren't too happy about the deliverance of the slave girl, and they're also afraid because they imprisoned Paul, and then they find out he's a Roman citizen, and they're like, whoa, get, just get out of town. Right? So Paul and his team, they move on, they move west to Thessalonica, and in many cases you would think, well, the church was kind of done with Paul, but in, in the case of the church at Philippi, they don't forget Paul. As one commentator summarizes the situation, during the three weeks of difficult ministry in Thessalonica, Paul received material assistance, that's financial aid, from the Philippians several times. Then later, after Paul eventually arrives, arrives in Corinth, where he stays for 18 months, he again receives assistance from the Philippian church. Later, you recall in his third missionary journey, he's trying to get a, a love offering for the impoverished church in Jerusalem, and he's trying to raise money for them. And he, when Philippi finds out, the Philippian church finds out about this relief offering, they want to give to it. And Paul wasn't even going to ask them to give to it because they'd already given so much. And he knew that they were struggling as well. But instead of not giving, in 2 Corinthians 8.3, Paul writes this, They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. This was a lavishly generous church. And whatever Paul was a part of, they wanted to be part of it as well. As we saw in Acts, trouble was on the horizon for Paul once he came into Jerusalem with that offering. It was there that he was falsely accused by Jews from Asia of bringing a Gentile into the inner portions of the temple. We know that Paul was innocent, but he remained a prisoner because of the various political 
climate, the climate that was surrounding him, and people were trying to appease the Jewish leadership, so they did that by keeping Paul a prisoner. So eventually he appeals his case to Caesar and gets to Rome in that way. And at the end of Acts, Paul is under house arrest in Rome, but he's free to share the gospel to anyone who wants to come and listen, and the gospel's going out from Rome. That's how Acts ended, and we covered that as a church not too long ago. You say, what's the connection to Philippians? Well, here you go. It's likely during his imprisonment in Rome that Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church. He mentions in the Philippian letter, he mentions his imprisonment four times just in chapter 1, verse 7, 13, 14, and 17. You'll read the words, my imprisonment, or literally, my chains, or my bonds. So from this imprisonment, likely around 62 AD, the church at Philippi sends a man named Epaphroditus. We don't find this out until chapter 2, but they send Epaphroditus as their messenger and minister to meet Paul's financial need. We read about that in Philippians 2.25. In other words, they send a guy from Philippi to update Paul on their situation and bring him a blessing in terms of a financial gift. And as we're going to see in chapter 2, they hope that Paul is going to send Timothy back, because Timothy's with him in Rome. They hope that Paul will send Timothy back to help them out with their situation. But for now, that's not possible. Paul needs Timothy more than Philippi needs Timothy. And because Paul is unable to send Timothy, instead he sends them this letter. And because of the failure or the inability of, of Paul to be able to send Timothy, we get this spirit-inspired thank you letter. It's a letter of friendship and encouragement to help the Philippians know and to help us know the joy of being able to say in all circumstances, to live is Christ. And we don't have the exact details on the situation there in the Philippian church or there in the city of Philippi, but Paul's letter does give us some clues. As we're going to see in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul urges the church to stand firm in the face of opposition, some sort of unnamed opposition, and he urges them to be of one mind as they strive side by side for the sake of the gospel. He calls the church to a gospel resolve and a spirit-given unity, a oneness of mind as they strive together for the progress of the gospel out into the world and ever deeper into their own lives. And those two things work together, right? Sometimes we want to separate them. Are you, are you wanting to share the gospel with others or do you want to grow as a disciple of Christ? They hang together. As we grow in Christ, we're compelled to share the gospel with others. As we share the gospel with others, we see our deep need to know Christ ever more. Philippians is about both, the progress of the gospel deep within the church and therefore out into the world. And as we proceed, we're going to see that Paul places a great emphasis on the heavenly citizenship and the eternal perspective that should motivate believers. Your heavenly citizenship, if you've been saved by Jesus, you have a home that is otherworldly. Now the heavens will come to the earth and 
The earth will be renewed and we will have a home in the new heavens and the new earth. But for now, our citizenship, our primary first citizenship is not that of the country of our origin or wherever we have a birth certificate. It's where we have a birth certificate in heaven by way of the new birth, having our names recorded in the Lamb's book of life. Your first citizenship is a heavenly one if you belong to Jesus. Anybody believe that this morning? Okay. So this is important. The reason it's important is because what seems to be happening in Philippi is there's a conflict on the horizon or even underway between their heavenly citizenship and their earthly citizenship. You see, Philippi was a very proud and patriotic city. Philippi was not only, as Luke calls it in Acts 16:2, the leading city of the district of Macedonia, but she was, unlike many, many of the surrounding localities, she was also an official Roman colony governed by Roman law. Philippi, about a century before this letter is written, had been populated by military veterans of empire-shifting battles in Rome. So this was a city that was all in on being Roman, all right? We're Romans. We have the protection of Roman law. That was the the ethos and the culture in Philippi. Her residents were incredibly proud citizens. They often dressed, even though they're 850 miles east of Rome, they often dressed in Roman attire. The city itself was patterned after the empire's capital city in its layout and in its architecture. You felt like you were in Rome, though you were in Philippi. The theme song in Philippi probably included lyrics like this, I'm proud to be a Philippian where at least I know I'm free. (laughs) But times, they were a-changing. And Nero would soon be slaughtering Christians for entertainment. By the time that Paul writes Philippians, the relative freedom of Romans is eroding in ways that most Romans don't yet see or appreciate. Sound familiar? But Christians in Philippi are seeing it and they are being tested by it. By the time that Paul writes this letter, the emperor is to be acknowledged with the titles Lord and Savior. But Christians can't do that. Indeed, they must not do that. Christians can't see the state or any leader of the state as Lord or Savior. Our faith forbids it. And this is likely the situation in Philippi. They won't give in to the state or to the emperor. They won't give them recognition or honor that is reserved for King Jesus alone. This is likely why Paul tells them to stand firm and to not run to another Jewish-based religion in chapter 3, a faith that was acceptable to Rome but contrary to the gospel. And Paul says, don't do that. Stand firm in your faith for Christ. Before the believers in Philippi were a Roman colony, they were a colony of heaven. Shockingly, redeemed by a king who saved them by going to a Roman cross. Romans hated the cross. The cross was a a sign of derision, a sign of being cursed. 
You would not in Rome see people with a, a piece of jewelry hanging around their neck a little cross around their neck or a little bracelet with a cross hanging down. You would, you would never celebrate the cross. And yet these Christians celebrated the work that was accomplished for them on the Roman cross by King Jesus. God coming down, wrapping himself in our humanity and, separate, and substituting himself for us. And it is this King, King Jesus, this Lord and Savior who turns our lives and our world upside down. It is this King who compels us to put Him and His kingdom before anything else and to live together lives worthy of Christ no matter the cost. To do this, Paul's going to call us to live with joy and to think about our thinking. If you've studied Philippians in the past, the series might have even been called like joy or having joy in the Christian life. But as important as the theme of joy in Philippians is the theme of thinking. To be a believer in Christ is to think well about our thinking. He wants to challenge our fleshly defaults, our tendency to assume that comfort and acceptance and success in this world are marks of faithfulness and to instead embrace Jesus and his way of life as our default, as we seek to reflect him in how we live in the world and in our relationships with one another. So with that in mind, that, that background in mind, I want to invite you to hear with me Paul's grace-filled greeting in verses 1 and 2. You ready to dive in? All right. Paul and Timothy, servants, though the, the Greek word there is really slaves, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? God, we ask that you would give us grace in the hearing of your word to know Christ more, resolve, a holy resolve to do his will and to be his people. God, we ask that not just in this sermon, but in the series of sermons to come, that you would, you would shape us, that we would look more and more like your son, and that he would be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. There's three things I want to show you in this grace-filled greeting. For our living to redound to the glory of Christ. For us to live as though Christ is King and that he is Lord. And for it to shine out of our lives. The first thing we see in, in the first part of verse 1 is we need to remember we are slaves of Christ Jesus. We need to remember we are slaves of Christ Jesus. My uh, mother, um, I remember growing up when people would say to me, you know, oh, he's, he's smart or he's athletic or whatever. That didn't happen very often, by the way. But, but if, if anyone began to say that, I, I mean, I remember being five, six, seven, eight. Mom would be like, hey, hey, we don't want him to get a big head, right? So what does this mean? Don't get the big head. We are slaves of Christ Jesus. At the outset of this letter, we learn that Timothy is alongside of Paul as Paul is writing. Uh, the letter's frequent use of the first pronoun suggests that Paul is the primary author and Timothy's just kind of there with Paul in this case. In, in many letters, 
Paul will assert his authority as an apostle. But he doesn't mention that he's an apostle in this letter because there's no doubt about Paul's authority in Philippi. He doesn't need to remind them of his authority in their lives because they already trust it. They've already sent him a letter asking for guidance. They, they know Paul, love Paul, support Paul. They look up to Paul, perhaps to the point that they've even neglected their own leaders, whom he will mention. This is the only letter that he does this. He's going to mention the overseers and the elders, perhaps because Paul's like, you got leaders right there in your church. Work with your leaders. You don't need to talk to me. Nevertheless, we get this letter from Paul. So how does Paul begin? He doesn't begin with an assertion of his authority. Instead, he's like this. Hey, Paul and Timothy here, you know what we are? We are, we are slaves. We are slaves of Christ Jesus. Paul is setting the stage to urge the Philippians to think of themselves in the same way. The, the way to be united as a church is to remember we are all mere slaves to Jesus and Jesus calls the shots. To be a slave to Christ Jesus is all of grace. It's a statement of ownership and new occupation. To be a slave of Christ Jesus is to belong to him alone as our sole owner. You're either owned by Jesus or by something else. And all the other things that can own you don't set you free. When Jesus saves us, he takes possession of us, ownership of us, to liberate us from sin and selfishness and death and deliver us into a life of joyously, joyously living for his pleasure and his glory and the good of his people. Even this letter is the work of two slaves joyfully investing in the church at Philippi. As Gordon Fee writes, here is the predominant theme of this letter. Everything is of, by, and for Christ Jesus. He is Lord. Not our musical taste, not our occupation, not our ethnicity, not our marital status, not our family connection. Jesus Christ is the basis of our fellowship, our common existence in the gospel. We are here, North Roanoke Baptist Church, because of Jesus. End of sentence. You, can, you don't need to add anything else to it. Not because my best friend goes there. Not because my mother-in-law goes there. Not, we're here for and because of Jesus. Now, it's good to have community. It's good to have connections. It's good to have friendships. But the thing that unites us at the end of the day is we are servants and slaves of the same master. He's got one command, and he gives it to all of us. He is the focus and content of the gospel in which Paul and Timothy and the Philippians are partners. He is the Lord to whom every knee will bow, either now or when it's too late, as we'll see in Philippians 2. You see, Paul gets it. Paul used to torment people who followed Jesus, and now he is gladly bringing them into his kingdom. He is delighted to be Jesus' slave. Young Timothy Though he was Paul's delegate to minister to churches in, in Paul's absence, though Timothy has an authority as well, he likewise sees himself as a slave of Christ Jesus. So these men of great authority introduce themselves of, as slaves of Jesus. Not just any Jesus, by the way. Do you see that? Slaves of Christ Jesus. 
Slaves of a particular Jesus, the Jesus of Nazareth, who fulfills all the promises of the Old Testament for the Son who would be anointed by God to rule the nations. They are slaves joyously serving King Jesus. To be saved, you must be a slave. To be saved, you must be a slave. We must stop being owned by our own fleshly passions and instead be owned by King Jesus. Is Jesus master of your life? Is he Lord of your life? Jesus is the only master who sets people free by taking ownership of their lives. Drugs will take ownership of your life and it will enslave you and condemn you to hell. Sex will take ownership of your life and it will enslave you and consign you to hell. Popularity, fame, wealth, every other thing in the world will take ownership of you and it will enslave you and damn you, but Jesus will take you as his own and set you free in him, free to do his will, to live for his purposes. If comfort owns you, you'll only be free as long as you're comfortable. And having been a pastor here at North Roanoke for eight years, let me tell you, at some point in your life, you'll be uncomfortable. I don't care if you're running every day, if you're working out every day, if you are trying to say to death, you won't catch up to me, I'm here to tell you, it'll chase you down and it'll catch up to you eventually. Everybody's going to, unless Jesus comes back, which would be great, but assuming the Lord tarries, we're all going to die. We'll all end up in a hospital or in hospice, it's unavoidable. And there's only one king who can deliver you from that slavery to death. And he is the one who came and substituted himself on the cross and three days later rose from the grave to deliver you from the fear of death and even ultimately from death itself in the resurrection to come. If comfort is your king, you'll only be free as long as you're comfortable. If winning is your king, you'll only be free as long as you are the best. If money is your king, you'll only be free as long as you have more money than everyone else, and you'll always want more, and it will never satisfy you. If doing your own thing in your own way is what owns you, you will struggle with the implications of what Paul's going to say next in verse 1. To all the saints... In Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Paul's letter is to the whole church, all the saints, a church that exists in a particular community, Philippi, with known leaders, overseers, and deacons, whom God has placed among them for their progress and joy in the faith. Which means, secondly, all Christians need to understand. They have been set apart in Christ Jesus to be part of a local church in their community. You say, well, that's pretty basic. You don't even need to say that, Pastor. Unfortunately, I do. Because in America, there's this idea that I can just ticker tape my Christianity together. I can go to seven different churches. I can listen to a hundred different podcasts. I can do studies. I can do conferences. I can do all this other stuff. And I can fashion my religion, my religiosity and my faith according to my likes and my desires and my preferences. I don't have to go live it out in a faith family and suck up my preferences from time to time to obey King Jesus. I'll just put together all my preferences and have them on repeat on my iPhone. 
Michael Foster said it well recently. We're all looking for a spiritual high, but nothing grows a Christian life like a serious commitment to a single church week in and week out for years and years. Not conferences, not social media, not even personal devotions. The local church is where mature Christians are slowly forged in the fires of mundane faithfulness. Find a church and go all in for the glory of God. The priority of the local church in the life of every Christian is assumed in every New New Testament epistle. Paul is willing, excuse me, is writing to the entire church, all the saints, in a particular location, Philippi, and his letter is to be embraced by all and applied by all in obedience to the king of all. The Bible assumes that anyone who names the name of Jesus will be an active part of a local church where they live. One commentator said this, there's no category for a faithful Christian who neglects or remains disconnected from the local church. You just can't find it in the Bible. We can't say we love Jesus, but we just don't care too much about his bride. If we are slaves of Christ, it is because we are saints in Christ Jesus. We've been bought by Christ because he's placed us in himself. Saint means holy, distinct, or set apart. If you've been set apart for God, you've been set apart to be a part of his people. Fee says it this way, Christ Jesus is both responsible for our becoming the people of God and as the crucified and risen one, he constitutes the present sphere of our new existence for God. And I would add that he constitutes the sphere of our new identity. We've been set apart not because of what we did, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. We weren't able to sing it today, but I love that song, What He's Done, What He's Done. All glory and honor to the Son. He came down to make us new and to make us His bride. And to be a part of His bride, you got to get connected with a local family, a local expression of His eternal church in your community. We are not saints because of what we've done. We are entirely new because of Jesus. In Him we are adopted. In Jesus we are forgiven. In Jesus we are cleansed. Why? To be among with the saints. How many of the saints? All the saints. Jesus saves individuals, yes, but He does not save us to navigate our lives in isolation. He saves us to be actively engaged in a local expression of his universal family, a local church where we are united in truth and the pursuit of his glory to the ends of the earth. And for this to happen, the saints at Philippi need to be with their overseers and deacons. This is, as I mentioned earlier, this is the only letter in which Paul mentions the two biblical church offices in the greeting of the letter. The church is to be with their leaders. Not against their leaders, not indifferent to their leaders, but with their God-given leaders. In chapter 2, Paul will address grumbling and disputing in the church. We can't be certain, but it seems his addressing of grumbling and disputing and his mention of leaders in the greeting 
it, it suggests that they're bypassing their leaders. To be a slave of Christ and a saint in Christ Jesus includes belonging to a church and following her leaders. And among the two types of church leaders, Paul mentions overseers and deacons. These are the two biblical offices of the church, overseers and deacons. And he mentions overseers first because, as Fee writes, those who bore this title held the primary leadership in the local church. The word overseer comes from the Greek word episkopos, which means to scope out every detail, to be informed of everything necessary to care for God's flock. It's a comprehensive term signifying comprehensive care and leadership. There are two other terms. Y'all don't call me overseer Daniel very often. There are two other terms that are used for overseer in scripture, and they are the words elder and pastor. The terms are used interchangeably in places like 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 and 2, where Peter exhorts the elders to pastor the flock by exercising oversight. Three functions, one office. When we studied Acts, we saw that Paul's practice was to appoint elders in every local church. We saw in his emotional farewell to the elders of the Ephesian church at Miletus in Acts 20 that there were multiple elders there. And now in Philippians, we again see a local church led by multiple pastors who, as Marita puts it, shepherd the flock by knowing, feeding, and leading the church. Next, Paul mentions deacons, both Overseers and deacons are to be examples to the flock. Both lead the flock, but in different ways. Overseers lead in prayer and the word, and by applying the word to the overall direction of the church and ensuring faithfulness to Christ and the gospel in the assumptions and practices of the church. But deacons, they lead by serving in in practical acts of service. Marita says they not only serve, but they help others serve as well. We're going to have a picnic later today, and there's going to be some setup required around 3.30. You want to show up and help some deacons serve? They will be able to lead you as they serve in serving. So on the one hand, overseers and deacons are just saints like everybody else. They're just slaves to Christ Jesus. They are just set apart for Christ Jesus. But on the other hand, They've been set apart for a particular role of leadership and service. And the church that remains united and joyful and humble and effective will be the church that esteems her leaders very highly in love because of their work, 1 Thessalonians 5.13. For our lives to reflect and glorify Christ, Christians have to connect with the local church in their community. They've got to lovingly esteem their leaders, and they've got to go all in there for the glory of of Christ. And by the way, it doesn't have to be this church, but it needs to be a church that thinks like this about the church. Does that make sense? I, by the way, I hope for all of you it is this church, selfishly. But it doesn't have to be North Roanoke, but it needs to be a local church that thinks this way about the local church. It needs to be a church that has a leadership that thinks deeply and biblically and theologically and missionally about what the church does and why she does it. So if we're going to be faithful, we need to consider ourselves slaves of Christ. And second, we need to be actively engaged in a local church. And finally, we need to remember, verse 2, 
our ongoing need. We need to remember our ongoing need for God's grace. In verse 1, Paul tells us we are slaves of Christ and saints in Christ. And now he reminds us in verse 2 that this is all by grace from God. It's all about God. It's all what God has done. We're slaves of Christ. We've been set apart in Christ. And this is all from God. We have a new occupation. We're slaves of Christ. And we have new, a new position. We are saints in Christ. Not from what we did, but by a gift we received from who? From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love it when people say Jesus isn't called God in the Bible. Well, all he uses is a simple conjunction and between God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because they're on the same wavelength. Jesus is the Lord. He's the Lord Christ. He is God. And we've gotten grace by a God who came down to save us. Saving grace the grace that puts us in God's family, and sustaining grace, the grace to keep living for Him in His family, they are all from God. And so Paul says, grace to you. At the very beginning of his letter, what do you need to keep going? You need grace from God. Grace to you. Now what's interesting is letters of friendship in that day, they all began with a greeting, and they began with the word greetings. They didn't say grace to you, they said greetings to you, and the word in Greek for greeting is the word karen. All right? It's karen to you. But Paul takes that format of a friendship letter, and he doesn't say karen to you, greetings to you. Instead, he says charis, or charis to you, which is the Greek word grace. Do you see what he's done? He, he's taking this template and he's like, you don't need my greetings. Greetings, friends. Greetings and salutations. Pfft, who needs that? That's not going to do you a bit of good with what's, what he's about ready to drop on them in the letter to Philippians. Paul's greetings, that's not going to help you out. You know what you're going to need to be able to digest this letter when I open up a can and talk about your grumbling and disputing? You're going to need some grace. You're going to need some grace to get by your fleshly defaults and let God do the work that he's going to need to do in your spirit so that you can process what's coming. Grace to you. You've been saved. You're in the family, but you're going to need some grace to keep being sanctified. So Paul says, not greetings to you, but grace to you. You need God's grace far more than my greeting, Paul says. Oh, may God grant you, dear slaves and saints, the grace to see and desire and act in accord with his will. May he give you the grace to hear some hard things and then apply yourself to them for the God who has given you saving, saving grace in his son. That same God will give you sustaining grace to pursue his son's glory in the church and throughout the world until he comes. Praise God. Grace to you grace to you. As you walk out this morning, don't forget it is all by grace. We need God's grace. And as we receive God's grace, He does so that we might be gracious towards one another, that we might stand firm in a face of worldly opposition, that we might truly be able to consider the interests of others more important than our own. And when we live in this way, what comes? Do you see it in the greeting? Grace to you, 
and peace. It's not written, Paul didn't write grace and peace to you. He wrote grace to you and peace in the Greek. This is important because peace is impossible without grace. Grace is a prerequisite to peace. In giving and receiving grace, we find peace in the family. We find peace in our hearts. When we get grace from God through Jesus Christ, when we bow our knee to the Savior, that's when we have peace with God. That's when the world and its attack, it doesn't really all that matter that much because I have Jesus and Jesus is coming back and he's giving me grace and I get to live for him and be in him and have a church family and that's where peace is found. There's people in this room that don't have peace with God because you don't have Christ as king and until you get grace, you'll never have peace. And so if you came here looking looking for peace, go to the God of grace, and then you'll get peace. But if you keep trying to find peace by what you do and who you know and where you've been, you'll never get peace on the inside. It'll always be about what somebody thinks about you, what somebody says about you. Do you have enough of this or that? Or did I go to the right church? Did I check the right box? Did I bring enough offering? I don't care. Until you find grace, you'll never have peace. Oh, but when you find grace, you'll have peace. Doesn't mean it'll be easy. Doesn't mean it'll be smooth sailing. Doesn't mean you won't be surprised by a calamity that's breathtaking. Doesn't mean you won't be abandoned or betrayed. Doesn't mean the world will suddenly agree with you. But it does mean we no longer fight against God because we go with God. It means we no longer fight against one another because we are satisfied to belong to Christ and do His will. To find real inward satisfaction in laying down pride and preferences for the good of the church and the glory of Christ. To have this peace requires ongoing grace to appreciate how much we've been given in Christ. And from gratitude to gladly lay our lives down for His glory and the good of His people. So church, North Roanoke, my, my prayer this morning is that it would be true of us that we have no other hope and no other passion and no other delight than to serve the one who was broken so we could know God by grace. In closing, I have three questions as our worship team you can go on and come up. Three questions. Actually, I'm going to pray and then ask you the three questions. Would you pray with me? God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We praise you that you've given us truth and it is found in your word. And you are sanctifying your people in the hearing of your word. God, we don't need pleasantries. We don't need greetings nearly so much as we need your grace. God, help us to fall afresh as a body on your grace this day. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Three questions as we think about the invitation. Are you a slave to Christ or are you a slave to something else? Honestly. Is Jesus Christ your Master, Has he taken possession of your soul? Have you bowed your knee to King Jesus and said, I want to leave behind my self-glorification and my self-worship and I want to run to Christ and live for him? Are you a slave of Christ? If you're not, then today needs to be the day 
that you bow the knee and trust him because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. Secondly, are you actively a part of a local church? Have you gone all in? Have you said, put my name on the line? I'm in this people, with this people, for this people. I'm giving to this people. I'm loving this people. I'm investing in this people, and I want to be challenged by them, and I want them to challenge me as we spur one another on to loving good deeds until the day of Christ Jesus. Are you a part of a local church family? And if you're not, Join this one or join one soon. We'd love to have you as a part of North Roanoke if you're a slave to Christ. And finally, you say, Daniel, I can check those two boxes. I, I know Jesus. He's my master. I don't, I don't always do it perfectly, but he's, he's my master. And, and I'm a part of this church. And I'm, I'm giving and I, I'm serving. I'm doing what I know, need to do. But, man, sometimes I forget about God's grace and it becomes about check boxes. Y'all remember those old offering envelopes with the check boxes? Did you go to Sunday school? Did you bring your offering? Did you read your Sunday school lesson? Did you read your Bible? I did, I did, I did, I did. And I forgot somewhere about, it's about what God's done. It's about what God's done. Maybe you'd say this morning as we stand and sing in just a minute, I don't need to trust Christ again. I don't need to join the church, but by golly, I, I need to, I need to reorient my thinking stop looking at myself and start looking to my Savior again and say, praise God for what he's done. Praise God for the grace that I have in Christ Jesus. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.